Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 191. In this episode, we're talking about Pauline theology as a way of life with Professor Joshua Jipp. Professor Joshua Jipp is Professor of New Testament and Director of the Carl F.H. Henry Center for Theological Understanding at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and the author of the book that we're excited to talk about in this episode, Pauline Theology as a Way of Life, A Vision of Human Flourishing in Christ, published by Baker Academic. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Dr. Madison Pierce, Dr. Logan Williams, and me, Dr. John Anthony Dunn. So Madison and Logan, uh, we just had a great conversation with Professor Josh Jipp about his new book, Pauline Theology as a Way of Life, uh, a wide-ranging conversation covering a lot of topics, especially you know how this book is situated relative to other Pauline theologies, the practical nature of Paul's theology in general, and a whole host of topics like transhumanism and suffering and all kinds of stuff. Uh, what did you guys take away from our conversation with Josh? I always really appreciate um, Josh's work because it is so integrative. And I mean, that that is all the more true of, of this project. Um, and it really reflects his curiosity as a scholar. And so um, seeing the way that he's woven all these things together so faithfully is really interesting. And in our conversation, I enjoyed um, him him being able to uh, articulate some of the pieces in the in-between, um, you know, some some of the chapters and stuff. So that, that's a, that's an abstract reflection on the conversation, but I enjoyed it. Uh, yeah, I, adjacently, I, I just similarly thought that the methodological reflections that he opens with are really helpful about, you know, what, what why is it our kind of default that we just kind of do this like popoy in various, you know, Pauline letters, and we just kind of stick them all together and just systemize that, systematize them, and then just speak of them abstractly. And I think his, him, you know, the, the way he takes the approach of like, what if we make those and organize those top boy around questions about like, can I change my character? And do I have an identity? Do I have agency? Whatever. He'll talk about all that. I just, I think that's a really creative approach. And I think it makes the material more refreshing. Um, it, it also, I think, is just it's it's more in line with generally what um, uh, reading literature, you know, ancient literature does for us, let alone like scriptural literature. Um, and I, I, I thought that was just a kind of like really sensical and an interesting approach where it, it wasn't trying to force Paul into a certain theological mode, but also therefore didn't just treat him as a complete as a figure that cannot speak or interact with or be placed in dialogue with certain modern questions about identity ethics personhood whatever so i i, I like those methodological reflections at the front and if you haven't already please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review and you can also follow us on twitter facebook instagram or visit us at our website at the two cities.com and with that Here's our conversation with Professor Joshua Jim. Well, Professor Jip, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, John. It's good to be here. Looking forward to our conversation. So with your new book, Pauline Theology as a Way of Life, are you subtly implying that doing a Pauline Theology takes up one's entire life? Oh, wow. To, to to actually, no, it only took like 18 months. Wow. Well done. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but if you're going to try to like live the way of life, then, you know, that uh, might, that might take an entire lifetime. Yeah. It, there it is. There so it is. The okay. theology is not writing a theology of. But, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I, I, I really don't want writing um, a theology to be the rest of my life. <laughs> At all. Well, yeah. well, tell us, tell us exactly what you're trying to get at with this book, Pauline Theology as a Way of Life. What is that that way of life that you sketch out in the book? Yeah, it is. Um, you know, I I remember whenever it was, maybe my PhD studies at Emory at some point when I read Pierre Ado's Philosophy as a Way of Life, which seems to have. Other people must have been reading it at the same time because there's a lot of way of life going on, uh, kind of theology stuff going on right now. 
Um, but I remember reading this and thinking about sort of like the way in which a lot of Pauline theologies are done um, in ways that are helpful, but I think often also assume that Paul just had an overly uh, consistent theological abstract kind of program, a little bit more systematic than maybe he really was. And, you know, of course, when you're actually reading Paul's letters, you see, okay, this guy is someone that is deeply attentive to um, his churches, his communities, um, how they're living, um, maybe thinking on his feet in terms of what are the implications of how uh, these churches, the, 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 you know, Gentiles, former Gentiles, whatever you want to call them, their former way of life now intersects with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so anyway, I wanted to try to um, write something about Paul that uh, was a little bit more engaged, a little bit more existential, a little bit, and also um, something that hopefully anybody that is interested in sort of the human human existence, um, the human condition, uh, whether they're a Christian or they're not a Christian, could pick up and sort of say, okay, existentially or as it pertains to life, here are some of Paul's deepest, um, most animating convictions. So that that's sort of like the very beginning of the idea for the project years ago. So would you want to say that most Pauline theologies don't sufficiently account for the practical things that Paul says, or that the topics that Paul addresses at length that, you know, um, scholars of Paul love to talk about, um, uh, aren't given the kind of practical weight and implications that they sort of require given the way that Paul talks about them? I think a little bit more the latter. I think there is, you know, it's very much um, the the way of writing a Pauline theology, whether it is looking at discrete topics. And so you're moving, you know, think of, uh, I mean, and all of these are helpful. So all of these have been books that have influenced me and have been helpful. But and whether it's James Dunn kind of using Romans as the spine for, you know, moving from topics like creation and humanity and sin and salvation, or or whether it's um, sort of dividing up Paul's, you know, into his letter, you know, just treating his letters and then trying to look at which ones are most important or what things he says have enduring theological significance um, I think that it tends to come across, can, can come, the form of writing a Pauline theology, uh, and I'm not saying I've solved this or anything entirely, but the form, I think, at least in my mind, can come across too focused on um, thinking and systematic exposition um, and a little bit abstract. And so it's, 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 yeah, that's, it, it's a little bit more the latter in terms of what you said. I imagine too, you know, with with Pauline theologies, you tend to kind of either offer a diachronic account or a synchronic account, right? Are we going to talk about how Paul's sort of letters were written chronologically and kind of account for his theology sort of developmentally, or are we going to kind of give like a a stated like this is kind of Paul's mature thinking, et cetera? Um, given the practical nature uh, that you're focused on, that sort of uh, suggests uh, some sort of permissibility in uh, a, a diachronic way of articulating Paul's theology, not not least because of the ad hoc nature of Paul writing, you know, letters for specific occasions where the kind of uh, particulars of his kind of abstract thinking could could vary, but, but even sort of over the course of time, uh, develop and stretch and extend in ways that may not be uh, fully anticipated at earlier points. Mm -hmm. uh, how would you want to kind of uh, talk about that dynamic within uh, what you address in your book? Right. Great question. I mean, obviously, you know, Paul says makes so many different theological claims, you know, in whatever we're taking seven letters or 10 or 13, whatever letters we're looking at, there's an abundance of theological claims that he makes. And it's hard to know, uh, you know, what to what to make of all that theology. Um, so at one level, what I what I'm trying to do, and it tends to be more with the seven letters, as well as then, you know, Ephesians and Colossians. Is, is try to say, is try to look and see, are there places where Paul, and here is a level where I, I guess I am trying to look and to see if like, is there sort of like a supreme good or goal of human existence that Paul sets forth that can then sort of like organize or order or help us understand, you know, what some, some of the other types of theological claims that he makes. Um, uh, um, so for me, that tends to be, you know, looking at, you know, something like Philippians 3, 
or maybe or or texts where Paul, whether it's First Corinthians thirteen or Second Corinthians three, where Paul's, you know, whether what whether we want to use the language of Christian theology, the beatific vision, or whether it's places where he's speaking of sharing in Christ's resurrection and life or in the glory of God, seems as if he speaks as if the goal of human existence is something along the lines of sharing in the life-giving love of God through the person of Christ. If that's the supreme good that we can see, you know, and kind of see in a variety of his letters, are we then able to see how that sort of supreme good or the goal of human existence, um, I don't want to say just as an organizing framework, but is sort of the um, the main good after which Paul is after and theological implications are, are then drawn from that to, to bear upon the life of the church, the life of his communities. So what would you say, or can you give us some specifics about how, uh, what is unsystematic about your book? Uh, or how, in what way does your book contrast with the kind of systematic, descriptive, more static accounts? Um, obviously, uh, you wouldn't say your book is therefore incoherent and just all over the place. <laughs> it has some structure and stuff. But what what is it about your book that actually structurally and also topically offers something different from just the standard, like, a theology of Paul. And, right. You know, yeah. I, I think, know. yeah, great question. I mean, it's still obviously in the, you know, my book, Pauline Theology as a Way of Life is still a book and it's still <laughs> thinking and it's still, right. It's still uh, like, it's, it's, it, you know, you can't ever fully overcome the, that abstraction. Um, so at one level, I guess, I suppose it, it would be you know, something along the lines of, um, uh, I think some of the questions that Paul was interested in are still questions that we're interested in today, whether you're talking to another Christian or you're talking to someone that's not a Christian that may have to do, you know, with things like, can I actually change my character? Um, you know, is there a way to have a coherent moral agency in terms of I want this right, but I feel I feel this way, you know? Um, how do we deal with, you know, emotion? How do we handle adversity? Like, does adversity serve any, you know, purpose or role? Is it a good? Is it an evil? Is it an adiaphora? Um, uh, whatever it is, you know, what what am what am I supposed to do with that? Um, uh, you know, how do we think of um, sort of like the people that we're supposed to learn from in terms of allow to have influence in our lives? Um, are emotions good? Are they bad? Are they uh, not just are they good? Are they bad? But should we be like our negative emotions? Okay, is it okay to have anger? Is it okay to have grief? Should those be sort of eradicated? Um, so those are just a handful of, you know, where do I get my identity from? Is my identity something that I choose? Uh, that I event that I, that I invent that I search and I go on a quest for? Is it something that's given to me? Um, so there, there, it, it's still, as I said, it's still a book, right? It's still thinking, it's still, you know, footnotes, it's still making arguments, um, uh, in terms of what I do, I'm doing. So I don't want to say you can fully overcome sort of what I, what I was saying in, in a, in a book form, but, uh, but those are sort of like the topics that I'm trying to, to, to address. Um, and I'm not saying you can't do that with, you know, um, not picking on James Dunn. It's just been the, probably the most influential Pauline theology book, at least on me. Um, but, you know, there's still a way you can do this through, you know, James Dunn's Theology of the Apostle Paul. Um, but maybe one way of saying it is I'm trying not to just only say this was in the first century. You know, I am trying to describe Paul and explain Paul, but I'm also trying to do so in a way that's attentive to as best as I can, some of the questions of human existence. So John Barclay was your supervisor, right? Yeah, yeah. So like his his smaller book, Paul and the Power of Grace, I know he's not like necessarily maybe trying, it's I'm not saying it's that, you know, like my project is his project in any way, really. But like, when he's talking, you know, like he has like a couple of chapters that have to do with sort of like, you know, what, what would it look like for a community to live out of gift rather than achievement? You know, yeah. a question like that. I find even, even though I don't think Paul and the power of grace is necessarily um, like those chapters or maybe the entire goal of Barclay's project, those type of questions to me are really interesting. Um, and I think they over help to overcome some of uh, the abstraction of thinking of Paul as like a heady theologian. Um, and actually thinking about someone that had, yeah, I mean, a lot of robust theological claims he was making, 
but ultimately that were in service to really concrete, practical, you know, ways of living that he wanted to see his communities live into. So I don't know if that's helpful, but anyway. No, it is. So you kind of see yourself as, as addressing now, like, what are the analogous questions of our time uh, in terms of human existence way of life? Yeah, to some extent, my questions are, you know, I'm I'm not not as interested in like if no one classifies this book you know with the other pauline theologies that's okay i don't i, I won't mind cuz that wasn't it's not really the primary goal i think i do want to try to like give some coherence to like what was paul up to with all of these theological claims he was after I'm not saying i can organize it organize it all or that we necessarily should that's in service to what he sees to be his supreme good but I'm also very much, I mean, as the book has a lot of both ancient philosophy and positive psychology in it, you know, certainly interested in, you know, thinking about what are enduring questions of human existence, whether you're thinking about emotions from the Stoics, or you're thinking about emotions with Jonathan Haidt and Arthur Brooks in an Atlantic month, you know, an article in the Atlantic, and, and thinking of those as some of the questions for um, getting into Paul. And so to get into the to the meat of things uh, now, uh, could you tell us what your favorite chapter is uh, in your book? Uh, and it's a little like, it sounds like I'm asking you to pat yourself on the back, but what was the chapter you enjoyed, you know, writing the most? Uh, and um, why is that the case? And what do you think it has to say to people? I think it is probably, I think it's chapter four, the one on transcendence, um, where... I'm not, this is not, you know, a radically novel claim or anything like that, but, um, you know, where I argue that, you know, Paul's theology, of course, can't be made sense of apart from giving account for our supreme good, sharing in the life-giving love of God through the person of Christ, and that there's something that isn't fully achievable in this life, like we 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 share in it through the Spirit now, um, but it also requires a strong hope and eschatology. And one of the reasons I, I've, I'm, my mind will go in too many directions here. One of the reasons I think that's my favorite is because of the way in which, um, first of all, it's just something I think about and struggle a lot with, you know, in terms of sort of like, um, if you're going to, um, if you're going to try to live out Paul in some way, you have to have this sort of incredible belief that you know we are going our communion with god is not going to be broken by death um i remember i think his name is luke ferry who wrote a little book on the his brief history of philosophy and he talks about how he's not going to treat christianity in this book um because it's religious but he also says of course if christianity was true if that was actually believable, then, you know, of course, everybody would want that. That would be amazing, but I just can't believe it. So it's a pretty bold claim to try to, I think, to try to live into Paul's vision of sharing in the life-giving love of God through Christ, but also, I mean, the the emphasis then on the virtue of hope. And, you know, um, so, so that's one thing. I think it's also fun. It was a fun chapter for me because... I think it presents the strongest kind of contrast with ancient philosophy and positive psychology. Um, so Paul, uh, I mean, I, th I think reading Paul with Sto the Stoics is illuminating and interesting. Um, but I think at the end of the day, Paul and the Stoics are just so different. And in this regard, for Paul, um, uh, you know, trying to um, conform to get your will or your mind to conform to this world is just an exercise in futility. Um, it's not, the cosmos is not rational right now. Um, uh, it's not appropriate necessarily to conform our mental judgments to it. And as a result for Paul, it's very appropriate at times to have negative emotions. I mean, I think, you know, if a lot of people, a lot of positive psychologists and, you know, Stoics are like after like the good passions or the good emotions, um, uh, Paul, you know, is very different in terms of, you know, saying like, actually it there, because the world is not ordered according to the way that God intends to order it in the future, um, at times to experience grief or anger or whatever it is, is actually the right emotion. So anyway, um, that was probably, I, that was probably the most enjoyable chapter for me. It's also sort of like the foundational chapter for all the Paul chapters. So. 
So that's interesting. I've, I've never thought of Romans 12 that way, with the do not be conformed to this world being potentially undermining the Stoics who think that the goal of the, or the kind of telos of the ethical life is to live according to nature, mm -hmm. uh, which is supremely and, and uniquely benevolent, is identical to Zeus, men's, God, yep. mind, whatever. And you're saying that this is, this is, Paul's view of the cosmos is a bit more like there's some mischief going on. And so the telos of, of, of human behavior cannot be conformity to this world that is the present evil age that is passing exactly. away. Exactly. Yeah. By, by Christ who's risen and reigning, but rather to be conformed to the to the image or, or some other kind of telos. Do you think that's kind of like an anti, a little, little like kind of side jab at the Stoics? Yeah, I don't know. You know, I mean, I guess when I teach Romans 12, 1, I'm not necessarily saying no. Paul was giving anti-Stoics, you know, like direct here. But I do think, I mean, yeah. basically, I thought, I think you articulated my view pretty well right there. Um, that, yeah, it's absolutely an exercise in futility. And as you said, you know, Galatians 1, 4, the, this is still, you know, in some sense, the present evil age. In some sense, even if, you know, Christ is raised at God's right hand, we're still waiting for the subjection of all things. And it's not ruled by him fully yet. So to try to conform our emotions, right, to this present evil age, um, I think is, yeah, Paul is, uh, yeah, as I said, an exercise, not just in futility, but um, uh, the direct opposite way of, you know, seek the, is sharing in the life of God. So absolutely, yeah. Josh, one of the things that I find really interesting about the book is this emphasis on the Pauline community well, being a community that to be with or to be one with God means to be in Christian community. And um, I found myself wondering um, as I sort of process where the church is and these various crises, um, you know, what to what extent is that true at all times and in all ways, or how would you sort of nuance that recognizing some of the challenges that we see in the American church? Mm -hmm. And um, well, first of all, I'm glad you brought up sort of like the implications for, you know, Christian community. Um, and just, just to make sure I'm clear in terms of your understanding, uh, um, well, do you mind if I just ask you in terms of where the American church is at? Um, just uh, questions of Christian nationalism, sexual abuse, uh, narcissism, just everything, or what would the... So I am thinking about this more extreme example, certainly, but I would also wonder about just the sort of anemic nature of our theology sometimes. And this isn't isolated to the American church, but it, it's certainly, that's the context with which I'm, I'm familiar with. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, thanks, Madison. I mean, I think, I do think for Paul, there is... Um, uh, there is like an implication of like sharing in the life living love of God is that we do so then um, not individually, but in some ways as a part of an individual, as, as part of a community. Um, I mean, I think of these little, these little, you know, groups, churches, whatever you want to call them as sort of little Pauline learning communities. Um, they've rejected their gods, their former gods in one way or another, and they're trying now to learn how to live a life, you know, together in community. Um, which is why, you know, I think the fundamental ethic, right, that Paul sets forth, and this is nothing shocking, but is, you know, is is one of love. Um, I also think that, you know, Paul for me is interesting in that when we look at, and, I, you know, I, I don't, I hope you can let me know if I'm, you know, addressing your question, Madison, but I do think when you see, you know, Paul and his relationship with the Corinthians, one of the things that I find to be interesting is that Paul has clearly alienated the Corinthians. He's hurt them. He has, you know, um, spoken truth. But he's said so in a way, I mean, I mean, it's pretty, you know, if, and it's things that are like pretty harsh and pretty shocking in terms of what he said to them. Um, maybe surprising that people would think this, but I think, you know, I think what, what Paul then does is um, he, he, <laughs> I'm going to say this and you can just all laugh and your audience can laugh too. I think Paul does demonstrate a model of like social and emotional intelligence. He knows that he's been hurt. He knows that he has hurt them. 
he, he he's willing to actually name right the harm the hurt right that has taken place now of course Paul d- doesn't think that he's the one that's wrong but he's willing to you know to acknowledge at least like here's where I've offended you here's where you've offended me but he's also still like trying to say I love you and you love me and you are my joy and I'm your joy and we've been brought together right as one people or as one family in Christ as he then at least tries you know tries to work through that um so I don't know if I'm getting at, I mean, you know, um, those that don't operate in good faith, um, uh, you know, I mean, th- those who uh, willingly sort of like will, you, you know, are unwilling to sort of operate within the boundaries of the Pauline ethic of love. Paul at the same time also has no problem saying you're outside of the boundaries of, you know, the the Christian community, whether it's the guy in 1 Corinthians 5 or if it's another person that he talks about in 2 Corinthians 1. So I don't know if I'm fully addressing, you know, your question, Madison, but I do think there are some resources um, for thinking about, you know, um, uh, what Paul, you know, what Paul did in some of these situations. Yeah, I think what what my particular interest is, is acknowledging the importance of community is, I mean, I completely agree with the importance of community, but I also want to recognize that when our communities are like, they're malforming us Mm. that that benefit is is diminished and so i i really appreciate the direction that you took that in thinking about um paul's relationship to the community and and things like that but i i guess i'm thinking more like i in relationship with you know other members of of my church if that's not an environment where we're we're actually forming each other well, but we're contributing to the like to again malformation of each other, then that's really trouble like troublesome. Oh, yeah, the you know it, it may sound overly simplistic. I mean, I think again going back to the Corinthian correspondence, um, uh, you know if 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 the church is doing anything in first Corinthians 12 and 14 to draw attention to itself in ways that's inappropriate, if it's like using, you know, spiritual gifts, uh, in ways to lift oneself up or to exalt oneself, um, right. If wealth, uh, or access to, uh, food and drink and resources are being used so that some go hungry while others are, are full or, you know, whatever the case may be. I mean, I think, you know, Paul is absolutely clear in terms of, you know, First Corinthians 13, and then we hear it a zillion times at, at weddings, but I think like it needs to be heard afresh in terms of that providing sort of the fundamental lens or ethic. Um, uh, there's a form of knowledge, right, that can be used to exploit and to harm other people. And 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 as you said, like malform people, um, a knowledge that is, you know, devoid of love. So it, you know, it, it's simplistic, I suppose, in terms of me staying in the world of Paul, but the things that Paul keeps giving to us um, in 1 Corinthians, you know, 8 through 10, and then 11 through 14, is these communities have to be marked by by love. And if they're not marked by love, which is sacrificing for one another, putting others ahead of oneself, right, then there's some pretty real questions, I think, about whether it's really a Christian community or uh, whether what's taking place, um, Paul would want to actually, you know, tear down or engage in expulsion of certain members. What do you think is one of the most, um, one of the topics that gets treated in Pauline theology that is the most untapped for its practical output? Hmm. Pauline topic that is most untapped for its actual practical sort of potential yeah 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 um i do even though there's a lot of work being done on this not just in pauline studies but elsewhere but elsewhere as well um i do think thinking more about emotions um how um you know what are they um when why am i feeling what i'm feeling is it ordered toward what is good or is it ordered, you know, in, in a way that is inappropriate? Um, I think we are, you know, I know I'm obviously like constantly, you know, I want my emotions to be positive and I want them to be happy. I want them to be peaceful and comfortable. 
And there's a lot of good emotions that Paul talks about that are ordered towards Christ in terms of peace and joy. But even as I was saying, you know, a little bit before, there are appropriate times when we experience pain um, uh, or harm or death, you know. And so when is it right and how can I, um, you know, when when is it? When is, when is it actually good for me to experience and live into a negative emotion? So I think more conversation about like emotions in Paul, and then also helping us think about sort of, you know, what would that look like today for Christians is one that's really interesting. Um, and then I also think maybe, you know, I still wonder if there are ways that I, I, maybe the chapter, you asked the chapter I was like my favorite or most happy with Logan, and I answered I don't know. I don't, it, it feels like, uh, you know, like dumb to say, here's the chapter I was least happy with, but you know, the chapter where I'm sort of like, I, I, I feel like I could use help from people, um, both like, you know, scholar and practitioner with is the last chapter, the chapter on practices. Um, so what are the actual specific practices that Paul advances that help us make progress towards sharing in the life-giving love of Christ. Um, and not just identifying what some of those practices or virtues are, hope, love, you know, or whether it's, you know, generosity or whether it's emulating Christ-like characters or it's, you know, worship in a Christian community, whatever the practices may be, but sort of identifying what these practices are um, uh, uh, in a robust way within the Pauline texts, but then also, you know, um, teaching us and helping us move move forward in terms of how we live them out in the, 20, in the 21st century. So I guess I kind of took two stabs at trying to answer that question, but but again, we have a uh, we have we have Paul the unstoic, right, living into negative emotions, which you know, yeah. Seneca would be very upset. Or no, he would be upset. He would be <laughs> because he would he would he would feel something about it. I don't know. I I love. I mean, like one of my favorite things that I've you know done the past few years. I, I mean, I my my minor at Emory, we had to have a minor, and mine was in, you know. Platonic ethics, which basically just meant I took two classes on Plato, you know, didn't do that much. Um, but and and then one of my favorite things has been reading ancient philosophy, you know, for the last 10 or 11 years. Um, uh, and it's illuminated so much within the New Testament for me. Um, uh, but it's all but I also think I mean, I also think Paul and, you know, an Epicurean way of life or a Stoic way of life. I mean, I just think maybe I'm sounding like Kevin Rowe here. I just think I think they can be compared, but I think they're also just like fundamentally different ways of living. Um, anyway, yeah. So another one of your chapters is about the mind of Christ. And uh, one of the things that uh, I've been interested in a lot lately is um, transhumanism and this idea that we could sort of transcend our physical human limitations in some way by means of technology. And as like artificial intelligence, you know, becomes more and more, uh, you know, uh, mainstream and, and a concern within the zeitgeist, you know, presently, um, this is, of course, uh, a, a topic of, uh, of grave concern, uh, the idea of like uh, artificial minds and artificial intelligence and the way that that could lead to super intelligence. Well, I think it's interesting that Paul talks about having access to the mind of Christ as this mode of existence that transcends, you know, human limitations. I mean, given Paul's divine Christology, right, that's a pretty wild idea that we could have access to Christ's own mind by means of the spirit. So I'm just curious if you could tell us about what that means and looks like for Paul to have access to Christ's mind, the the whether or not this has ever come across your mind in terms of transhumanism. Uh what 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 some what are some thoughts you, you want to share about the nature of having access to Christ's mind for Paul? Yeah. That's a great question. I I I'm I think of it in terms of, you know, 1 Corinthians 2.16, when he says we have the mind of Christ, as you've referenced, we, um, uh, it's in the context, uh, obviously, of, um, you know, a, a pretty long articulation of uh, individuals, and I think the community having the spirit of Christ. Um, 
whether that's the material spirit or not, not, you know, for Paul, it's certainly a reality, all right, that I think he thinks that we have, um, that does a few things. Um, it, it, it makes known to us, the spirit of Christ makes known to us, known to us sort of the same loves and emotions and affections that Christ himself had for God, the father. Um, so in Romans eight and Galatians four, there's some experiential, intimate, you know, worshipful, you know, cry or whatever that the community is engaging in that seems to echo Jesus' own cry when, you know, the spirit of the risen Christ is in our hearts so that we will cry out, Abba, Father. Um, so it's also within the context, First um, Corinthians 2, of Paul having just given, given a long exposition of the cross um, and the implications that the cross has not just for, you know, salvation, but primarily for how we think and how we make decisions and how we make judgments. Um, and as Paul's trying to do uh, in 1 Corinthians is trying to, you know, if we have access to the mind of Christ, I mean, it's parallel to where also in 1 Corinthians, we're the body of Christ. Um, and so how do we have access to it? And this is why Madison's question is so important. Well, what if that community is forming us in ways that are off the rails or are inappropriate or are not right taking Paul's ethic or whatever you want to call it as the fundamental way of living um then that becomes right a really that's a dev devastation and travesty right that that serious sort of you know work needs to be done in terms of either reforming the community or leaving or changing the community or whatever because for Paul we have access to uh the mind of Christ in part by how we in the community are hopefully with other Christians that are rooted in love, they're grounded in love, they're making decisions out of love, um, that are seeking to lift up others, that are seeking, I mean, um, uh, you, you know, as a lot of First Corinthian scholars have shown, Paul's often taking the side of the poor, taking the side of the weak, right? He becomes like the weak, he doesn't become like the strong. So anyway, John, I, I don't know if, I'm probably not answering the question in terms, uh, you know, that is really, you know, um, with respect to transhumanism, although maybe it has something for how we think of technology, you know, in terms of the way that we're shaped and formed and developed our loves uh, are not just mundane sort of like people getting together, but these are persons that have the spirit of the risen Christ and therefore are, you know, being trained and habituated in forms of trying to pursue the good of others ahead of, you know, uh, their their own good. Right. Yeah. And of course, the the transhumanist thing is is more sort of the context in which I am, you know, mm -hmm. interested in thinking about the mind of Christ. I, I am curious, you know, about your own articulation of what Paul would say, as you did, and uh, and really appreciate that, because I think, you know, what's what's uh, significant about this is it can kind of provide those ethical parameters for how we think right. about things like artificial intelligence in our contemporary world, how we think about the aspiration of super intelligence right. within a transhumanistic right. lens, because what I find so interesting about what Paul says about, you know, thinking like Christ, like having his having the mind of Christ and thinking like Christ is it leads to things like kenosis. It leads to things like other regard. It leads to things like evaluating the concerns of others more highly than yourself. And so um, that is, of course, you know, not sort of along the lines of the transhumanist aspiration of like, yeah. you know, some type of super intelligence that would be more akin to like a pursuit of omniscience or something like that. Right. This is this is a a a very different way of like thinking, right? But the one who was in the form of God, who didn't account equality with God a thing to be held on to tightly, yeah. he emptied himself, right? And so I just think that that is a really important sort of ethical parameter for for totally. AI and, I, I and think, all this stuff. I think like with you know I, I'm always intrigued by First Corinthians eight, where it seems if I understand it rightly, Paul you know, is saying, okay, we all have knowledge, but then, you know, goes on to basically speak of a form of gnosis or a form of knowledge that is ex potentially exploitative or creates divisions or hierarchies. So there are certainly forms of learning and uh, that are potentially exploitative and harmful. And there are also the kinds of learning that Paul is after, which is one of, as you said, kenosis, uh, love. And so anyway, yeah. Um, Madison knows I have voluntarily lowered myself by being quite poor with technology. So that's, 
that's my virtue true kenosis <laughs> yes. yeah yes. josh is always really glad when people talk about the evils of technology because then he can act like he's like virtuous you know as a matter of principle and not as a matter of deficiency I, i'm sorry <laughs> for all the times i relied on you to help me madison I'm, i miss it so much figure out anything tech related <laughs> oh man so canonic and looking at the shape of the chapters and in, in the book i think that even though you've been um really you've leaned into the role of negative emotions and negative feelings and kind of difficult concepts uh within paul it's interesting that there's to me that there's not a full chapter or like a, a significant focus on something like, um, you know, cruciformity or like participation in death. You know, it's sharing in resurrection life. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if, you know, this kind of comes this intersects with our conversation about this kenosis. Mm -hmm. um, the. Yeah, what does it look like for us to not just share in the mind of Christ, but to yeah share in the sufferings and pain and and enter into that? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, I mean, I think yeah, it's a great, great question, Madison. I think for me, where how I would answer that and where I where it comes out a little bit in the book is talking about uh, ways in which um, for Paul, I think. Um, uh, encountering adversity and suffering, I don't think for Paul is like a good in and of itself. I don't think that it's like, you know, sort of like the end goal is to be crucified or is, you know, like to experience pain. Um, I think because of this present evil age, I think because we are still like waiting in hope for fullness of life, then it's assumed as basically, I don't, not a good, but it's basically assumed that we are going to encounter trials and sufferings uh, and pain and, and some form of adversity. So I first just want to say, like, I don't think it's like an end goal or the good. I do actually think like the end goal is resurrection life, right? That it is yeah. fullness of life with God. But in the, so in the meantime, um, and again, just want to be clear, not trying to valorize suffering, but in the meantime, right, the 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 person that has um, the mind of Christ um, uh, is is capable uh, um, of basically um, experiencing grief, uh, whether that is through death of someone else, of a loved one, um, in a way that still is. Um, um, still with a posture of hope. Um, not that that death is valorized or is good, but there still is the hope basically of restoration. I think Paul thinks of that, you know, believer being reunited with Christ and us being reunited with them. Um, so I do think some of the ways we hear those at funerals at First Thessalonians, talking about First Thessalonians 4 are actually right to what, in terms of what Paul's saying in First Thessalonians 4. I think there's also the ability to know that sort of like suffering or um, pain. I mean, this is this is um, you know nothing. I don't think radically new, um, but actually, as Paul says, um, uh, can produce you know further character. It can produce resilience. It can produce an ability to love others better and empathize and enter into you know, other people's experiences of, of pain and suffering um, in, in order to, you know, exhort them and to encourage them and, and help them. So I don't know, does that, that's, yeah. Yeah, I think that's super helpful because it reminds me that um, things that Paul values aren't, you know, like the suffering in the, in the style of Christ. I and mean, it's not exactly the mm -hmm. Pauline phraseology, of course. Um, that doesn't necessarily um, represent the good life. And so it would make sense that that, that wouldn't be a, a significant feature of what you're doing here. It's um, it's something that is endured or um, taught, you know, is, um, is expected, but it's not necessarily like what ought to be. And so, yeah, that makes sense yeah. to me. I, I think like people who, you know, people that are suffering that embody sort of like a patient endurance and hope. Like, I do think that is part of the good life. 
yeah. not the suffering itself, but the ability to say like this world, right. Or my material benefits or some of these things are not actually the ultimate end. Um, and so I'm not saying that, you know, bodily illness or loss of a loved one or whatever it is, is a good, but that the, there is, I think, a, a virtue that stems from Paul's understanding of Christ that is in the midst of that pain and suffering as I, yeah, I'm just repeating myself, but is basically able to have a posture of, you know, endurance, steadfast hope, and an ability to, you know, sort of like receive from other people, you know, like to actually be dependent from others. And, and, and as a, you know, um, those people are often the ones that are able to actually live the kenosis that we were talking about, you know, really well, because they are able to enter into other people's experiences of pain and suffering in ways that not everyone is. So what, what I kind of hear what's coming out and but maybe I'm just maybe I'm just thinking about um because this is on my mind but like sufferings are good to the extent that they have a telos in community and love and fellowship with other people and the the kind of pain and suffering and anxiety that Paul has is for his communities not just I'm just going to beat myself to share in the sufferings of Christ um right so it, I I think that's what at least that's what I hear you kind of saying that there's there's you know those things are are good to the extent that they facilitate and are required by these yeah to maintain these relationships even even in really difficult moments yeah. uh, because because he really cares about fellowship and creating communities yeah whatever. anxiety is not a good in and of itself I don't think right I don't think Paul thinks like part of the good life is anxiety. But I do think, right, thank God, like, um, but I do think that Paul thinks, you know, because part of what the supreme good is, is, right, God creating communion with people through Christ. And so, like, Paul, the way he speaks of his relationship with other people as, you know, almost an end in itself, so that when there is alienation and there's harm and there's brokenness, whatever it is, that it actually in that moment it's right it's 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 inappropriate to you know to encounter anxiety um there's also a sometimes there can be i think for paul like a suffering that comes about you know and for other christians because um there is um decisions that are made that are not for comfort wealth and status. And so, you know, if Paul is voluntarily engaging in self-lowering, that can create forms of loss, you know, that might look as if it's, you know, might not be desirable or whatever, but it leads to situations where there's going to be, you know, certain forms of pain or hunger or, you know, not having a stat status that he might have had that ultimately those things in and of themselves are not necessarily good, but insofar as they result out of a prior decision to um, prioritize Christ on. So it makes me think of trauma theory and and um, it makes me wonder about like how bringing Pauline theology into conversations with that would would um, what that would look like just because you think about something like anxiety, you know, you said anxiety is not a good in, of it in and of itself. And that's true. And that would be true in trauma theory as well. But the idea would be that the anxiety is helping is a protector or is like, or something that the body has developed to ward off additional trauma. Mm -hmm. And so in a sense, it actually is in service of like right. something good. And so it'd just be interesting to tease out some of those dynamics and, yeah. and all of that. I mean, I do think, I know like Grant McCaskill has, I just read the article, I haven't read the book, but you know, it did something all right, all, re related to the Bible and autism, right? And I think it was pretty influenced by Paul. But I think questions like what you're asking, Madison, you know, as I was saying before, you know, I mean, um, yeah, to me, those are, uh, I, I would love, you know, more, obviously, we would all like more works that are sort of like doing what we're already doing. But like, you know, more, more conversations about like, not Paul just left in the first century, but like, are there things he says that can actually help us for, right, what we're really thinking about and wrestling with today. So anyway, I, to me, I'm just gonna say that's a great example of, you know, something I would be interested in reading. Thanks, Josh. Well, um, we could keep going for quite some time, but maybe as a, a last question, I would wonder, you know, this is Pauline theology and 
I have tolerated a long conversation on Paul. Um, just joking. Okay, um, so we're going to talk about Hebrews or what? Is the... <laughs> well, you know, I'm just going to let you talk about any any book in the New Testament that you want. But okay. I wonder, do you think that um, if, like, if we took this out, if it were New Testament theology as a way of life, yeah. you know, what are some of the ways that this might shift um, that I would be interested in hearing? Oh, that is a, that's a hard question. Um, <laughs> because there's just so much, you know, there's, there's so much there. Um, Feel free to pick a book, you know, if you wanted to just, I, I don't know, I'll just pick one randomly off the top of my head. Hebrews. No, I'm just joking. You <laughs> yeah. can pick whatever you want. Well, maybe one that starts uh, with H, ends with three. <laughs> yeah, like Hebrews you know, 1 through 12 or Hebrews 13? Um, the last, the last letter Paul wrote, you know. Should, the, I, should I just do some? Um, Oh, Madison, that is a real, that is a really good question. I, this, you know, as I hear my, my, as I hear what my brain is starting to say, I'm realizing this will sound like a punt. Um, I think, you know, what I'll say, like, what interests me about, interests me about Paul as opposed, not as opposed to the gospels, but as different from the gospels, is it seems as if you at least have these like really concrete learning communities, these, you know, that are on the ground so what I love about Paul's letters is you're able to, um, you know, at one level, like reconstruct to some ex some extent how real people were, you know, responding and, you know, to Paul and what they liked, what they didn't like. And that's probably, you know, why so much of my conversation today has been on first and second, you know, the church in Corinth or whatever. There might be a little more... Um, you know, let's say, you know, I was going to look at um, the Gospels. Um, I do think, you know, some have shown that like generosity and um, uh, inclusion of different types of people is present within Paul's communities. But I do, th I, I am grateful for the witness of the Gospels and Luke Acts that makes us maybe when we read Paul's letters, wonder, are we missing something? You know, what are, are we missing? Sort of, And I think like someone like Bruce Longenecker, and there's a Carla works. I mean, there's people that have done some really great work on this, I think, in my view, to show that actually there is more there within Paul. Um, but I also wonder, like, would we have had, would we have seen it, right, as clearly if we weren't already wondering, sort of like, well, I know this is in the Gospels. Is Paul an outlier? Does he care about for lack of a better phrase, issues related to social justice, or is he just sort of like a heady theologian? And so I do think there are aspects of like the gospels that can keep us really deeply grounded in that regard. Um, and I am so sorry I did not answer that question with respect to Hebrews, Madison. That's okay. Thanks, Josh. Sounds like you guys have a book project to work on. <laughs> there you Hebrews go. is a way of life. Hebrews yeah. is a way of life. <laughs> Well, well, Professor Jip, uh, this has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much uh, for your time and for writing this book. We hope everybody checks it out, Pauline Theology as a Way of Life. Thanks so much, guys. It was fun to talk with you, and I appreciate you all making time for the conversation. So thank you.